I want a bit of the quiet life. I want a bit of shelf indulgence. If there is reading, give me all of it. Join the show on the Microbrew Radio. Listen to Jim, Wendy, and Emily. Join in the conversation. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Shelf Indulgence, your weekly dose of bookishness from Microbrew Radio. I'm Jim and I'm joined as usual by Wendy as we take a slightly different approach to the show tonight as we're reading books different to each other. Wendy, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Good evening, everybody. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this week because um, I've revisited an old friend um, and sometimes we what forget what joy. that looks like. So, um, yes, I've had a really good time. Good, I'm glad. Right, so we are focusing on historical fiction this week and next week, but as a bit of a break of um, style, rather than Wendy and I reading the same book as each other and discussing it, we're reading different books so we can ask each other about those books. So I've chosen for mine uh, Alan Moore's The Voice of the Fire. And Wendy, you have chosen? I've chosen uh, the third in a series, Sovereign, by C.J. Sansom. And readers might be more familiar with it as the Shard Lake series. I think before we get any further into those shall we take our weekly wonder i've chosen that verb particularly oh okay into poetry corner yeah looking forward to it what have you got for us tonight so i have wandered and found a classic that i love and it's a very very famous poem but one that probably people only really know maybe the first four lines not even the first full verse of so, let, uh, well, I think it's a bit of a giveaway. So I think you've chosen Wordsworth. I have chosen Wordsworth. Now, Wordsworth was... I wandered lonely as a cloud. Yes, I wandered lonely as a cloud. He, he originated the Romantic Poetry Movement, always one of the, the first of the two to really launch Romanticism as a poetry movement. This poem is incredibly famous for those few lines that we all know, wandered lonely as a cloud, a host of golden daffodils. Um, but, I mean... What made me think of this poem is that the daffodils are starting to appear. They are, yes, they and are. And they are my favourite flower. I adore daffodils. And uh, read, uh, listeners, you won't be able to tell this, but Wendy will see that I've got daffodils actually on my bookcase as we speak. You do, you do. Yeah. Has um, it got anything to do with your your affinity to the Welsh as well? No. Right. As, mu- as much as, yes, I have got an affinity with the Welsh and have spent a lot of time living in Wales, there's just something really joyful yeah. about daffodils. And I think that's something that this poem says far better than I can say. So with no further ado, I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils beside the lake beneath the trees fluttering and dancing in the breeze continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the milky way they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay ten thousand saw i at a glance tossing their heads in sprightly dance the waves beside them danced but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee 
a poet could not but be gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft, when on my couch I lie in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. Isn't that absolutely beautiful? And and really beautifully read as well, Jim. Thank you. It's a poem I adore because it really just, you know, the beauty of nature, the phenomenal shows that nature gives us. And I was actually reminded, I was reminded twofold of this, partly because the daffodils started appearing, but also um, this week saw the return to our screens of David Attenborough with his new documentary series, These Isles, These Wild Isles. And do you know what? That series, if if you've not watched it, I'd highly recommend. Um, But it really highlights how you haven't got to go halfway across the globe to find absolutely astonishingly breathtaking beautiful feats of nature yeah yeah and there is something about when you see an absolute host of golden daffodils or when the bluebells come out Mm. and you see that plethora of color and you just go wow there's something really and for me i think yellow as a natural color is so uplifting and joyful yeah yeah, I know what you mean. Um, and especially as we're coming out of winter and it's been drab and dreary and everything's brown and muddy and green, the green starting, but green, as much as I love green, green isn't the most vibrant of colours always. Mm-hmm. And, and then all of a sudden, bang, this huge display of bright yellow decrying its joy of the world and of nature. Anyway, before I become too much uh, impressed with my own love of daffodils, we should probably get on with the show. But yes, I thought I would just share that little poem because it's such a beautiful poem and one that perhaps people don't hear all of. Yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's a great pick for this time of year as well because as you're driving along the country lanes, they're all starting to just show colour at their very tips. So we know that spring is definitely on the way. It is, even though the weather might not be promising the same. No. <laughs> so, uh, now, Wendy, you've chosen returning to an old friend. Now, CJ Sansom is a name that definitely rings bells in my head. I'm aware of uh, the body of work. I'm aware of the Shard Lake series. I've never read any Sansom. Oh, right. And I've never watched the programme that was made as well. Right. So I am I am in virgin territory here. So I I know it's about um, Tudor England. Yes. I know Shard Lake is a lawyer. Mm-hmm. I know it's based in historical fact, even though it is fiction. Yes. Yeah. Um. So what for you in this line of book and this work and this author what is it that fascinates you and intrigues you and makes you what gives you your skin again to read this genre um i think that for him um he was when when i first read him 
I read him because it was a mystery series. Um, but what he absolutely did in the first book that I ever read of his was he just blew my socks off in terms of conveying a period of history to the point where you almost feel as though you're there. So he describes the the society, the way it was structured, the sights, the sounds, the smells, to such a degree that you you feel like you're experiencing it. And he does it very cleverly because um, Matthew Shardlake, he's, um, he is a lawyer, um, but he's, uh, first and foremost, he's a hunchback. And so um, he would, his life would have been tremendously difficult during Tudor times. And he's overcome adversity to become a, a, a very well-respected lawyer in Lincoln's Inn. And he talks about the, the because Lincoln's Inn was right at the beginning of the start of the legal process and the legal system within um, England at the time. And um, he he's a very pensive man and he's, he's an observer. And it, he has to be like that because what you realise by reading these books is what a terribly turbulent time the Tudor period was. So uh, if you were a monarch, you were constantly under threat of being usurped, assassinated, overthrown, sometimes by your family members. Um, you you were in conflict with um, other monarchs from around the world, particularly Europe, um, who were always vying for your territory. Um, you were, if you were Henry VIII, you were also flick-flacking between the Protestant and the Catholic religions. Um, and so th there wasn't an aspect of life that wasn't filled with intrigue and games and danger and it just because of who Matthew Shardlake is he he is the narrator you see the stories through his eyes and what you get is this sense of um, all of this political intrigue going on and at any moment if you say the wrong thing or you do the wrong thing somebody can come along and arrest you and if you're lucky throw you into the tower, never to be seen again. And if you're not lucky, have your head chopped off? So it's it's it feels like you're living on the edge when you read his books. And because he's quiet and he's used to being very guarded about what he says, he just observes and he describes what he observes through the books. Um, and it's just incredibly atmospheric. Um, and you get sucked in. So you, these books have a hold of you. And once they get a hold of you, you're spat out at the end when the book ends. Um, he's an incredibly evocative writer. Um, and I just love them. And Sovereign is my favourite out of all of them. Superb. Now, for me, I think one of the things I struggle with with historical fiction, and not just... In fact, probably less so with the written word, but more so with the TV and film historical fiction, is that what we have is a blurring between fact and reality. Mm. 
because there will be characters in the Shard Lake series who are without doubt real people. Oh, who yeah. In fact, the majority of these characters are. And if they have had their names changed, that's all they have. They're, they're very thinly disguised as real characters from history. And he is known for the amount of detailed research that he does into the historical shenanigans that went on at the time, Jim. Yeah. But there is a blurring, isn't there? Because Shardlake isn't real. There wasn't a Matthew Shardlake. Yes, no. Lincoln's Inn is real. It's still thriving today as a society for lawyers. But Matthew Shardlake was is is not real. No. So where where does the blurring does it do any harm, do you think, the blurring? I don't think it does because I think what he does is he takes a fictional character. And he, he sets them amongst a cast of real people. And that adds a huge amount of integrity, in a way, to, to the stories that he writes. Because although you know they're fictional plots, they are related to real incidents. And I find myself sometimes, I'll read something in one of his books, and then I'll go and check it on Google or whatever and, and, and find out that actually the incident he's just described was a genuine incident. So this particular book takes place after the uh, after the great progress or, or no it happens just at the beginning of the great progress so there's been an uprising there've been several uprisings one in lincoln one in york um and the uh, york one failed so they overthrew it um and it results in him needing to go and stamp his authority in yorkshire with the with the lorded gentry of the north and so he he takes the great procession um up into york to, as a show of force and this is um, described in in great detail but actually if you look at the historical content um, that exists about the great Pro progress it's very very authentic in terms of the places they visited what they did and it's almost like a look behind the scenes because you get to know you know physically what it was like to to move all of the food and the animals and the you know essentially the court yeah. from london up to the north so i think for me it doesn't fade that in any way i just think it brings it to life yeah, I certainly feel myself, it, it, when writing, historical fiction is an area I would be very cautious about writing in because of the amount of dedication one needs into your research and to be, yeah. to be respectful to not do a misservice to history through yeah. that blurring. Because certainly, I mean, I know, you know, in, although your genre you write in isn't historical fiction, there is a nature, there is an element of historical fiction there because you are writing about events that happened in the past that were real. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so there, there has to be a degree of respect and a degree of caution. Is that fair? Yeah, I think you. Uh, I think you have to be if you're going to write in this way. I think there's got to be a dedication to get those basic facts right. Um, and that's because you have to credit your reader with um, with that intelligence, that there is every likelihood that they will go off and do that research. And if you haven't got it right, then somebody's going to tell you. Um, but So I think if you are going to write in that way and you are going to take real historical events and link your characters or set a story amongst that, 
um, as the backdrop, then I think the least you can do is make sure that it's factually accurate. Yeah, because, we, you know, it would be these books are, to a degree, educational as well as yeah. if done properly for educational. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, I do think that if I'd have read, um, if I'd have read uh, the, the Shard Lake series when I was at school, I probably, seriously, I probably would have um, selected history as one of the topics that I would study as I went on into yeah. further education. Oh. Because he just brings it brings it to life. And the characters are so rich in terms of their thinking processes and um and their behaviors. You are hooked without a shadow of a doubt. So um so yeah, I think from from that point of view, um they can create if they're written well, they can actually create a real interest in terms of um, the history of of the period, and and may even make you go and do a bit of research and find out more about it. So, speaking of character, we know you know you've told us you've shared with us that um, Matthew Shardlake is a hunchback. He's a very successful lawyer in the time of Henry VIII. Um, but who is Matthew Shardlake? What type of man is and and what and what as a main protagonist, as a main character? What makes him such a success for Samson? I think he's an absolute survivor. So he's an incredibly intelligent man. He's very politically astute. He's a survivor. So he understands the political intrigue and how to play the game. He understands, however, that when you're dealing with a monarch that is as volatile as Henry VIII was, that you have to tread a fine line between standing up to him and giving him the real picture if he asks you a question and still massaging his ego because if you offend him then that can be your life over so he's a very politically astute man and but at the sitting at the core of him is this need for fairness and honesty and so he's a, a man of huge integrity um, and in in a time when one of the things about Tudor England was it was so rife with corruption, he to be able to tread the line that he does, he's a, he's a phenomenal character, um, a bit of a superhero really, I think. And so you are you are drawn in and you want him to succeed and you are interested in how he's going to tackle the next battle that he has to fight because he's he's constantly fighting battles because of the level of intrigue and and the difficulty is in that time you never knew who was loyal to the king and who wasn't because everybody had to appear to be loyal to the king um but there were constantly plots to to usurp him and um and stuff and um the level of conspiracy at the time was was phenomenal and in fact this book talks about um the uh the the great progress which was uh the aftermath of what happened with uh something called the pilgrimage of grace yeah. which was um uh another uprising that was led by a lay person richard ask and um the story picks up where the the great progress is going up to york and as matthew shardlight goes into uh, york town he's met with the most appalling sight of Richard Ask has been hung from the walls of York, from the city walls, in chains, still alive. 
um, and just left to die. And um, and the way he describes that, you get this sense. It's it's actually quite horrifying. Um, and if you know that that can happen to you, you have to know how to play the game. And and that's what draws me in with him because he's a master game player. So is Shard Lake appalled by the barbarism of this Oh, God, yeah, ab absolutely. Is. And there are times when, um, through some of the other stories, when he has to go and see prisoners who are in the... Uh, who are in the being held in the Tower of London. And and if they were aristocratic, then they would have a certain level of comfort. Um, but if they weren't, or if they were found guilty of treason, then they would be subject to the most awful conditions. And, and when he's called into those situations, he does small things just to try and ease their pain and their discomfort and you know there's in one of the stories he describes having to go and see somebody who's been on the rack and who has been who's been stretched essentially and the physical description of that these are not these are not easy to read books you know they are quite graphic in terms of what it's like to to be on the rack and what it does to you and then for him to go in and see this pathetic creature who has been tortured essentially and to do the things that he can just to try and ease the the discomfort they're incredibly human stories really jim and um uh, as i say not easy to read but incredibly well written excellent um I would like to know, then, in this book's title, Sovereign, I'm guessing it's not about the coin. No, it isn't. <laughs> it's about the, yeah, it is about the monarch. So we've, you, you, you've hinted that, that, you know, it's got the great progress that happened and, you know, there's this historical fact and we've got the, the, the contextual setting of it. But so what's the mystery? What's the... So the mystery is that you realise that while he is going as the legal representative to help to uh, prepare the legal cases of the locals who will be putting petitions to the king while he's in York, so he's there in official capacity, he's also been asked um, to do a spot of spying by uh, Bishop Cranmer, really, to try and um, to try and find the lay of the land, and um, and you, so you get the fact that he's there on a dual mission, and um, he also is there to escort one of the prisoners who has been accused of treason, a very dangerous man. Um, called Broderick, who was was instrumental in another plot to overthrow the king. Um, he's at the moment imprisoned in York, and it is Matthew Shardlake's job to bring him back to London, to the Tower of London, in good physical conditions so that they can torture him. And and just that is, he, it's a real moral dilemma for him to do that because he knows why he's got to be brought back and he knows he's got to do it because the king has ordered that that's what he's he's got to do but he's a man of humanity and so he's got to deal with this and it's um it, those sort of nuances of how he feels about that when he's given a task that he can't sign out of and what he does to do his bit just phenomenal absolutely phenomenal so is Shard Lake on the side of the king? I think he's on the side of justice. No, that's, so, not, that's not the same question as I No, asked. it isn't. It absolutely <laughs> isn't. 
And that's what makes the book so interesting, that you you are you're living in a period where the king is everything. The king is one down from God. And so he holds your life in his hand, whoever you are. And so he recognises that he has to observe the rules of, of the monarchy in order to live. But that doesn't stop him seeing the injustice and the unfairness and the brutality of, of what happens. And he muddles along trying to do the best that he can. So is this post the separation with Rome? Yes, it's just it, it it's just the other side of that. So um so that was what the uh, pilgrimage of grace was about. It was about the fact that um it was the dissolution of the monasteries and um and and people were not foolish, you know, they they recognized his motivation for that it had nothing to do with religion. And it had everything to do with expediency to get what he wanted. And, and, so, and to be allowed to be his own ruler. Yes, absolutely. One of, one of the things that really, um, and it didn't just bug Henry, it bugged many monarchs across history and across uh, geography, yeah. that they were monarchs up and to the point where the Pope may tell them what they can and can't do. Yeah. I mean, I know that, um, uh, oh, I forget now. Uh, I think it was Charlemagne. Mm. Might be Charlemagne. Charlemagne wanted to um, divorce, and the Pope made him a special bedchamber. Yes. No, yeah. come, 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 come and have quitters here in this blessed bed that I have prepared at the Vatican, and that will make your marriage better, but not divorce. And, you know, and Henry was in the same situation where, unfortunately, he wanted the divorce. The Pope said no, and he went, well, do you know what? Rome's a long way away. And yeah. I don't think you've actually got that much military might. But, yes, on on the uh, – I won't delve too much into that part of history. But, yes, I, I think it's a, it's a, the Tudor era is a fascinating period. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, I definitely think I could read it. So how um, about yours then, Jim? What did you choose well, to read? Well, maybe before we go into um, The Voice of the Fire, shall we shall we visit one of our regular segments? Oh, are you going to tell us what Granny's been reading this week? Well, shall we? What's Granny read? What has Granny read since last week? Well, do you remember last time we spoke, she was just finishing, or she was partway through 1989 by Val McDermott. Yes, yeah. So she finished that, and then she went on to read A Darker Domain by Val McDermott. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then she finished that and went on to A Litter of Bones by J.D. Kirk. Right. And Have then... we created a new fan of, uh, of no. Tartan Noir then, Jim? No, no, no. She's, uh, she's very much uh, been a, a fan of the thriller slash mystery uh, genre for a long time. Tartan Noir is just um, absolutely part of her wheelhouse anyway right because she likes that kind of book and then she went on to read um the jigsaw man by nadine matheson which says on the front if you love early val mcdermott and fiona cummins then you'll love the jigsaw man oh, i'm not uh, sure i haven't read the jigsaw man when was it published jim uh oh you're asking me hold on i'll look inside um first published in great britain 2021 Oh, no, I haven't then. So maybe this needs to go on to our list. It says it has 
Um, the Daily Mail, which, you know, as we all know, is an absolutely just mm. and honourable uh, publication. But the Daily Mail said of the Jigsaw Man, spellbinding with chilling echoes of Thomas Harris's The Silence of the Lambs. Oh. Uh, the Jigsaw Man, um, the tagline for the book is, it takes a killer to catch a killer. Mm. That sounds great. I like that. Um, yeah. Uh, would, you, would you like to hear the blurb on the back of this one? Yeah, go for it. So there's a serial killer on the loose. When bodies start washing up along the banks of the River Thames, D.I. Henley fears it is the work of Peter Olivier, the notorious jigsaw killer. But it can't be him. Olivier is already behind bars, and Henley was the one who put him there. The race is on before more bodies are found. She'd hoped she'd never have to see his face again, but Henley knows Olivier might be the best chance they have at stopping the copycat killer. When Olivier learns of the new murders, helping Henley is the last thing on his mind. Wow. Will it take a killer to catch the killer? Now all bets are off, and the race is on to catch the killer before the body count rises. But who will get there first, Henley or the jigsaw killer? Oh, that sounds really good. Yeah, I thought you might like that. Mm. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, definitely, you you can see what Grand's go-to genre is, can't you? Yeah, definitely, Um, definitely. Yeah, anything like that. So yes, she's and she's now on to. Can't think what the next one is, but I'll, I'll report on that next episode. Lovely. Right. So my book. Um. Now, if I said the name Alan Moore to you, does it mean anything, Wendy? No, it doesn't. So Alan Moore is an incredibly good, incredibly well praised writer. Um, but possibly isn't so well known because although he is within his field, uh, heralded by many of his peers as possibly one of the best writers in his genre, he's been massively outshadowed by a certain gentleman called Stan Lee. All right. So Alan is basically DC Comics' answer to Stan Lee. Right. So... Um, let's what some of the things he's written. Let's see. Um, V for Vendetta, the League of Extraordinary. Oh, I have to say that is one of my favorite stories. Yeah, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lost Girls, Marvel Man, Swamp Thing. Oh, good grief. Watchmen. I can't believe I didn't know it was him. Batman, the Killing Joke, From Hell, Jerusalem, The Ballad of Halo Jones. Wow. Now, part, part of the reason you might not recognise his name is that actually a fair few of his comic book work is written under other names. Oh, right. So you may have heard of Kurt Vile. Oh, yes, yeah. Jill DeRay. No. Translucia Baboon, no. a name that you, you definitely wouldn't forget if you knew it. Brillburn Logue. And quite often, in some of his uh, work, he is p- merely credited as the original writer. Oh, right. Okay. So you can see why he might not be that well known. Yes. By his own name. Okay. Now, 25 years ago, Alan Moore wrote a novel, stepped away from all the comic books he'd been writing and wrote a novel called The Voice of the Fire. Voice of the Fire. It caught my attention and I just thought, I really need to read this. It sounds fantastic. So I bought the 25th anniversary edition that came out um, in 2021. So 
Alan Moore, who is he? Well, he writes comics, he's a novelist, he writes short stories, he's a musician, he's a cartoonist, he's a magician. A magician? He's a magician and and he's also known as an occultist because he's a fan of occult items. Well, that's a bit bizarre, isn't it? He's an interesting character. So, Voice of the Fire, what, what drew me to it as something that, I mean, firstly, it's cover. It's the 21st anniversary edition cover is quite a beautiful piece of art working itself. I did catch the cover when I was having a look at it, and it, you're right. It's very eye-catching, very colourful. But also, it's a precursor to his comic book, Jerusalem. Right. It's possibly something I've never, ever heard or seen of in anyone's bank of historical fiction genre that they may write in. Because the Voice of the Fire is set in Northampton over the span of 6,000 years. Okay. <laughs> so I've not got, I've actually not got a long way in, um, in terms of number of chapters. There are 12 chapters and 12 different stories from different areas of time. Okay. So chapter one happens in 4,000 BC, chapter two, 2,500 BC, chapter three, we move forward to the year 43, uh, and then the year 290, then 1064, 1100, 1607, 1618, 1705, 1841, 1931, and then finally 1995. And the, the chapters range in size. Some of them are smaller, some of them are bigger. Some of them are a matter of maybe uh, 11 or 12 pages. Some of them, like the initial chapter, are considerably longer. Chapter one comes in at 40-something pages, 44, I think. So you can see it, it, it's, you know, there, there's a big chunk there. And also this week, I've just I have been quite busy. So I'm only still on chapter one, quite a way into chapter one. But it's also chapter one hasn't been the easiest of reading because um, it's written very much in the vocabulary of the character. Oh, gosh. So the dialect would be from the yeah. time. Yeah. So we're going back 4,000 years. And now I don't know how up you are on your paleontology and prehistorical times of England. I'm not. Oh, okay. Well, if I might fill you in slightly then, as this is an era that does interest me greatly. So 4,000 years ago in England, in, in, in Britain, what was happening was we'd got a very interesting period of history where people were starting to settle. This was the point where we were going from being hunter-gatherers to farmers which is a key point in our development as a species. And actually, I'm not, I, I couldn't say for sure because I don't know exactly. I'd love to know from Alan whether he, he, he thought it this way when he wrote the book. But there was a, there, there is definitely, we know now as historical fact, that there was a time when Neanderthal man cohabited with Homo sapiens and Homo, and, um, Homo hadwagensis, two other species, in this part of the world. So Neanderthal, as far as we know, and we don't know everything, but as far as we know, there's no evidence really of Neanderthal man being a settler. And I wonder whether the main character of chapter one, who is known as I, because yeah. that's his name, he, he, he refers to himself as I, he doesn't have a name as such, as I, I's people, I's mother, <laughs> these are the people he knows. Um, 
and I um, doesn't is treated by the settling kind, which is how he refers to these people he sees as settlers. He's treated very much as an other. So, for example, when he approaches one uh, settlement, he stands and looks at these two men and these two men shout some things he doesn't understand. And then one of them throws a rock at him. And there's that almost, they're not treating him like human. Now, is that just, well, actually, in this period of history, other humans aren't necessarily, if they're not part of your tribe, you don't have anything to do with them because they're others, they're strangers. Stay away, it's our tribe. Or is it that he is a different species and, oh, he's one of those hope hunter-gatherer types, we don't want him around here. He's a Neanderthal, we are above that. It's quite a bit of a, a heartbreaking story in some ways, um, the story of I. So I's mother dies and I is not liked by his tribe. And his mother has told him this. He's like, they don't like you. And when she dies, they force him to dig her grave and bury her. And then they abandon him. You can't come with us. Now, again, we're not told exactly, but I imagine I, from the way he talks and the way that the story is told, to be late childhood, early adulthood, somewhere around pubescency, I would say. He's certainly aware that he has gender. <laughs> he talks about it. Um yeah. Uh, and but he, you know, he, he's he and his tribe are naked. They're hunter gatherers. They don't clothe, and he's he's abandoned, and he almost starves to death because of this. Because being by yourself and not being able to hunt enough for yourself is at this time in history absolutely fatal. Um, and actually, he's only he he only survives because of the kindness of. A girl who we again think is about the same age as him, who is of the settling kind. She finds him on the brink of death with an injured leg from where he's had rocks thrown at him by others and nurses him back to health. And I find, I mean, this for me is a really fascinating period of history. And I mean, to anyone out there who's considering reading it, I would equate it to when you first read Clockwork Orange. When you first start reading it, the language kind of struggle because it's mm. not written in common parlance. However, it, it wasn't as hard to get into as Clockwork Orange. Getting into the patter that they speak in Clockwork Orange was, for me, a lot harder than this. Um, seeing how he sees the world, how he sees the world around him, the fact that he describes these cloud beasts Sky, no, sky beasts, rather, sky beasts, which you soon realise are clouds. Because at night, you can't see the sky beasts, but you can see their eyes twinkling. Mm. And it's, it's a really nice way of, do you know what, this is, this is how people would have explained things. Yes, yeah. Before comprehension of what was there and what things were. You know, the sky beasts are weeing on me. He isn't that polite in his language. I've, I've edited it for you, Andy. Um, you know, the and that also he, he often talked about his dreams, but you can tell that from his developmental point of understanding and his brain, he does not know the difference between reality and dream. Yeah. He lies down, he shuts his eye, He's transported to a different place. He experiences the things that happened there. And then when he opens his eyes, he's back where he was before. Yeah. 
But he doesn't talk about it as being a dream. He talks about it as being, well, this happened, then this happened. Now, as a reader, you notice that, well, actually, that's 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 a dream, that is. That didn't really happen. But he doesn't know. He doesn't know it didn't really happen. He gets confused by these happenings that happen in other places. They frighten him and scare him. He, he gets confused by them. So, yeah, it, it's been a fascinating read so far. And I'm I'm really looking for... Now, the bit I haven't got to yet is because apparently there is a bit of a... In, in, there's an in, interconnected tale. Right, so something from that first chapter will be linked with so something somehow, in the second. Yeah, so somehow 4000 BC ties into 2500 BC. We've skipped 1500 years... But somehow the stories are interconnected. Right. Okay. So I'm really looking forward to being able to come back next week. And I know that once I get past this chapter one, I'll be able to fly through the chapters a bit more and being able to explain a bit more of how these tie together. There's, you know, there's, and there's interesting characters that are coming up. I know uh, we've got a fisherman who believes he's changed species, a Roman emissary, um, a crippled nun. An old crusader, um, uh, two witches who are lovers are burnt at the stake. You know, there's this there's this pattern that of interesting, and they're all said because the kind of the point is that it all happens in Northampton, which is where Alan Moore's from. Right. Okay. So I'm really looking forward to getting further into the book. Any questions about it for me, or? I'm really intrigued by the dialects, and it's going to be interesting to see how that changes as you come um, more into um, sort of recent history. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see whether it whether that's continued throughout. Yeah. Does it does it stop at present day, or does that does actually overshoot and go slightly? No. Into the so ninety five, which is just before when the original. So the. Uh, we've just had the 25th edition published mm. last, not last year, year before last, 2021. So um, 1996 was the original publication. Okay. Um, I had to do a bit of maths then because uh, actually on the on the front cover, it's written in Roman numerals. I was like, right, Roman numerals, what's that? <laughs> 1996, okay. <laughs> no, I'm going to um, be really intrigued to hear what happens with that because it's, a very unusual premise, isn't it, for a, for a book? So it's going to be interesting to see how he does tie those chapters together and what the link is. Yeah, I mean, to me, this first chapter has been fascinating. I really enjoyed taking my time over it a bit because of getting into the mind of this character who I almost feel certain must be Neanderthal. I could be wrong in that, but certainly knowing that Neanderthal man cohabited alongside I, I feel you know the difference in culture between eyes people being naked and hunter gatherers no written language poor spoken language mm. nomadic lifestyle almost quite animalistic in the fact that they don't do anything with clothing yes yeah where as soon as we meet the settlers they're wearing furs you know, literally only fur loincloths for some of them, but they are wearing something. They've got that concept of clothing. Um, they've got one of the, the, f the first characters we truly meet that he talks to, who is the girl. She 
although we never hear her speak, it's all his account of what happens. When she explains something to him, the English improves. So he, he is, it's as though by having had it explained to her, he can actually explain it better than... I'm trying to find an example where I can show you. Here we go. Eyes with dry meat in eyes' mouth. That many of eyes' sayings is she make I more wild say, more good for glean. Say I of walk and pigs as come to logs, and say I now of shagfold. She is shake head for and back for saying that she is glean of they. Say I of how on valleys I come, and big hill-making see, which go I bout on other side, and as like come hereby. Say she is men on making see I, and say I back no. And say she this is good. How is this good, say I? Oh, say she now, these rough men from setting river setting come. If they see I, these like castonatai. Look eye on leg and glean a right and save she. So it's... There's I, I, I would suggest, Jim, that you've got to be a fairly unique reader to be able to tackle something like that. And I think probably because you are so well-versed with Shakespeare and that dialect, mm. that this may have been slightly easier for you. Uh, no. No. No, I, I would. Oh, I vehemently disagree with that. Um, Shakespearean is nothing like how they spoke in Shakespearean times. Okay. Nobody walked around speaking like a Shakespeare play. He wrote in poetic writing. He wrote right. in verse and in, and in prose. Um, and there are parts of prose where it is a lot more like common parlance. Yes. Yeah. I, I get that. Um, but also, you know, there, uh, my name has, my mind's gone completely blank. I can't remember the name of the uh, playwright now. But there's a playwright who was contemporary of Shakespeare's, who recently a company have done a load of work of his stuff, and they put one of his plays on. And one of the initial reviews was, oh, it was great, I really enjoyed it, but why did you modernise the language? And they went, we didn't. <laughs> Oh, was this the Marlowe stuff? Is it the? No, it's not Marlowe. It's somebody. It's, it's somebody lesser known. Um, but yeah, they didn't update the language. That's just not. Not everyone spoke like Shakespeare. Um, oh. Can read Shakespeare. Uh, Shakespeare shouldn't be read. It should be seen and heard. Mm. I would suggest maybe having read it for a while and why it's taken me some time is I have reread bits is I've almost got into, and it's very well written that you, you kind of start understanding his grammar. Yes. Yeah. And possibly, you know, certainly I think, uh, I mean, not on the show, but last week it, uh, after the show had finished, I, I, I read a short bit to you and you went, Oh, I couldn't cope with that. No, I wouldn't be able to cope with that. Um, whereas possibly what I've just read might have made a bit more sense because I've, I've I've learnt his grammar. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. You know, and it's maybe maybe rather than because I'm an avid fan of Shakespeare, but more that I am a teacher who's worked in primary a lot um, can follow the lack of conjunctions, the lack of um, it has in a way it's got very much that nature of before children become developed in their language yeah. where they start yeah. using conjunctions properly before they start forming complex sentences 
It's very much like that. It's a series of short sentences or a series of, often it's a series of um, short clauses joined together by lots of commas. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's so, going to be interesting to see what you think when you've finished it. You know, the lack of question marks, actually, I've just noticed. I've just noticed there's not one question mark. However, there are questions. So, and possibly when I... Uh, when I read that last bit to you, there's a bit that says, um, say she is men on making CI and say I back no. Now, to translate it as you want, that would be, she said, did the men on the making see you? And I said, answered no. But because that's three clauses with commas, say she is men on making CI and say back and say I back no. So until you get your head around the grammar yeah, and understand, yeah. and actually until we just started talking about it, I hadn't even really noticed that there were no question marks because I doesn't get the concept of question marks. No, no. And and where it should be maybe two or three sentences to fit grammatically with what we would find acceptable, it's I stream of thought. And like I say, possibly through reading early readers, Early writers, rather. Maybe that's where I've I've got some I don't know, adeptness there. Anyway, right. time time's pressing on. That's gone much quicker than I thought it would. Um. Well, we've got another week of enjoying ourselves with historical fiction, Wendy. I know. I know. I can't wait. So next week we'll be back for the concluding part of Sovereign. Yes. And we'll to find spoilers out spoilers as well. To find out how many thousands of years I've managed to get through. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully six hopefully I was going to say it will get easier as you go on so don't yeah. knock you now, do you know what and, that, and that's the thing even though it's not been easy it has been thoroughly enjoyable mm, mm. so until next week when you can find out how the 4th century BC links to modern day Northampton and whether Henry gets his way in quelling the north until then good reading Good reading, everybody. Good night. This show is part of Microbrew Radio, Burton on Trent's community radio station. You can hear this and plenty of other shows over on microbrewradio.com. Find our app on the iOS or Android stores, or just say Alexa, play Microbrew. Radio. And if you like what you hear, please let us know on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Thanks. <laughs>